welcome to the latest in our podcast series, looking at the global financial regulator's response to non-financial misconduct and whistleblowing. My name is Claire McMullen. I'm a partner in the financial regulation group at Linklaters, and I'm joined today by a couple of my colleagues who I'm going to ask to introduce themselves now. Hello, my name is Gavin Lewis. I'm a partner in the dispute resolution team. And hello, my name is Nick Keery. I'm a partner in the financial regulation group. This is the latest in our series of podcasts, building on our global publication, reviewing the role that non-financial misconduct is playing in the assessment of the suitability of individuals to work in financial services. Our review is available on the Linklaters website, and a link is attached to the link to this podcast. It addresses the position in 12 key financial centres around the world and should be of interest to people in senior management positions, legal and compliance teams, and anyone with responsibility for whistleblowing programmes. Today, we're going to look at a recent decision in the UK by the Upper Tribunal concerning enforcement action by the FCA in respect of non-financial misconduct by an individual. The decision in John Frencham and the FCA tackles the difficult question of when conduct, in this case a conviction, that's unrelated to an individual's role is sufficiently serious as to justify a prohibition order. It's long been accepted that certain types of conduct, for example, criminal convictions for fraud or dishonesty, can impact an individual's suitability to work in financial services. But this case arises out of the FCA and PRA's increasing focus on the role that other, broader types of non-financial misconduct can and should play in assessments of suitability. Let's start by looking at some of the regulatory background before we get into the case itself. Gavin, can you set out for us the ways in which the FCA in particular sees non-financial misconduct as being relevant to its role in regulating individuals? There are three broad ways in which the FCA sees non-financial misconduct as being relevant. Firstly, it's an indicator of culture. Secondly, it might indicate a breach of the conduct rules. And thirdly, it's relevant to an assessment of whether an individual is fit and proper. The Frensham decision is relevant to this third point, fitness and propriety. And so when assessing individuals' suitability, the the FCA uses this fit and proper test. Can you um, give us a bit of detail about what that considers? FISMA indicates the FCA must consider an individual's qualifications, training, competence and personal characteristics. The FCA handbook expands on this, setting out three criteria, competence and capability, financial soundness, and thirdly, honesty, integrity, and reputation. And it's on this last point that non-financial misconduct is most relevant. And how um, firms and regulators respond to non-financial misconduct has been the subject of increasing debate across professional services firms generally, not just financial services. There's been a growing recognition of the significant impact that non-financial misconduct can have on the culture of organisations, the well-being of staff and, and ultimately outcomes for consumers too. Is that right? Yes, and this isn't new. There are several historic examples of the FCA prohibiting individuals for non-financial misconduct that raised concerns about their honesty or following a criminal conviction for fraud or dishonest conduct. There was the Burroughs case involving a failure to buy train tickets, the Hobbs case lying and misleading both the FCA and the tribunal, and the Verrier case that involved perjury and unlawful means conspiracy. In other cases, the FCA has prohibited individuals for serious conduct occurring outside of work that didn't involve dishonesty. The Paul Flowers case, use of chat lines and possession of illegal drugs, and more recently, 
the Jameson, Horsey and Cochrane cases where the SCA made prohibition orders following their convictions for serious sexual offences that were committed outside of their work. So those cases demonstrate the SCA considering the the impact of uh, non-financial misconduct as part of its enforcement work. And also we know that they take that into consideration in their authorizations and assessments of suitability. But there's been very little judicial consideration of the point. Is that right? Yes. And that's one of the reasons why the Frensham case is so interesting for financial services firms. One recent case outside financial services that looked directly at this question was the High Court's judgment in the Beckwith against um, Solicitors Regulation Authority case. This involved a decision by the SRA to fine a solicitor uh, for breaching two of its principles after some inappropriate conduct with a junior colleague. And what were the key takeaways from that decision? The main point was that the SRA principles referenced an obligation to act with integrity. And this obligation had to be, uh, as they said, drawn from and informed by appropriate construction of the contents of the SRA handbook, because this was the best guide to the occasions and contexts where members of the solicitor's profession ought to be held to a higher standard. In the Beckwith case, the solicitor's conduct affected his own personal reputation rather than that perhaps of the profession more broadly. It didn't follow that his conduct affected his reputation as a solicitor or the reputation, as I said, of the the profession more broadly. And given the right to private life under Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights, the relevant SRA principles it held may reach into private life only when conduct that is part of a person's private life realistically touches upon their practice of the profession or the standing of the profession. Any such conduct must be qualitatively relevant. So there's a tension, I think, there between that decision um, and the SCA's approach in cases like Jameson, Horsey and Cochrane. Would you agree? That's right. And it's the very question of whether and when a professional's conduct in their private life will realistically touch on their practice of their profession that we see being considered in some detail in the Frensham decision. And that's what makes it so interesting. So let's look at the Frensham case in more detail then. Nick, can you give us an outline of the fact? Yeah, thanks, Claire. Absolutely. Um, So in March of 2021, so earlier this year, the FCA published a decision notice looking to prohibit John Frensham following a conviction that he had in March 2017, so almost four years ago, for attempting to meet a 15-year-old child following acts of sexual grooming. He was sentenced to 22 months imprisonment. That sentence was suspended for 18 months but he was also made the subject of an indefinite sexual harm protection order and placed on the sex offenders register. The FCA's case was essentially that his exploitation of a minor, the abuse of a position of trust, and his deliberate and criminal disregard for appropriate standards of behaviour meant that he lacked integrity and that his prohibition was required in order to maintain public confidence in financial services. Mr. Frencham challenged that decision and referred it to the upper tribunal, and he effectively argued that the FCA was wrong to prohibit him because, firstly, the conviction didn't relate to his regulated activities, the firm that he worked for. It was effectively his own firm of financial advisors. He said that the conviction wasn't for an offence of dishonesty. He said that 
there was no link between the conduct and his future regulated activities. He said that he'd shown remorse for his actions and overall that prohibition would be a disproportionate outcome, particularly given the length of time since the relevant offences and the absence of any evidence suggesting that he presented an ongoing risk to consumers or confidence in the financial system. Thanks, Nick. It's worth mentioning, I think, a technical point that because the decision to prohibit Mr. Frencham is supervisory rather than disciplinary, the tribunal's role was limited to deciding whether to dismiss the reference or to remit the decision back to the FCA and ask it to reconsider in the light of the tribunal's findings. And given that, what did the tribunal decide? Yes, the the tribunal looked at the relevant statutory framework that Gavin outlined earlier, and it looked quite closely at a couple of SRA cases, so the Beckwith case that Gavin outlined, uh, and also another case, Wingate, where the court had, in that case, said that integrity, when it came to the standards of conduct expected of professionals, was used effectively as shorthand for the higher standards that society expects from professional persons, and it was connoting adherence to the ethical standards of that profession, but the duty of integrity does not require professional people to be paragons of virtue, and in every instance, integrity had to be linked to the manner in which the particular profession professes to serve the public. So whilst it is the case that somebody can lack integrity without being dishonest for the purposes of the relevant regulatory standards it is important to link that concept of integrity back to the standards of conduct expected in the profession and by the rules and standards of the profession as a whole so so the tribunal readily accepted that mr frenchman's conduct would widely be viewed as involving a lack of integrity in the broadest sense of that term but consistent with the Wingate and Beckwith cases, they effectively said that to prohibit Mr. Frencham, it was incumbent on the FCA to demonstrate that the behaviour engaged the specific standards that the regulator had set out and that the conduct was qualitatively relevant to those standards. And they pointed to statements in the FCA's enforcement guide where the regulator said that it would use its prohibition power where it is necessary to help achieve its regulatory objectives and the relevant objectives in this context were its statutory objectives of consumer protection and market integrity. So the question then becomes, did Mr Frencham's conduct in his private life threaten those objectives? And did it pose a risk to either consumers or or to the maintenance of confidence in the financial system? That's exactly right, Claire. And the tribunal in this case found that the FCA hadn't really presented sufficient evidence to demonstrate either of those objectives were threatened by the underlying conduct. They agreed with Mr. Frencham that the the offences were unrelated to his professional role and that they hadn't offered sufficient evidence to explain why the relevant conduct uh, and his lack of personal integrity was connected to consumer protection. They described the evidence as speculative and unconvincing and they pointed out that they were effectively just bare assertions made by the regulator there was no criminological or psychological expert evidence put forward to support what the regulator was asserting regarding consumer protection objectives and they they pointed out that 
there was no evidence that he had ever acted with a lack of integrity in his dealings with clients, either before or since the convictions. And they also pointed out that the FCA hadn't actually taken any supervisory action in the four years since the conviction, suggesting that the FCA itself didn't have concerns that the consumer protection was being threatened in a way that required more aggressive or more timely action. Uh, and so far as the market integrity objective is concerned, the FCA was the tribunal held clearly entitled to take account of the offence and the effect it had not only on Mr. Frenchin's reputation, but the reputation of the industry as a whole. But whilst his personal reputation had clearly been severely damaged by the conviction and several of his clients had actually left his business following the conviction, the tribunal said that the significant majority of his clients had actually stayed with him and the tribunal was not satisfied that the offence was impacting his reputation as a financial advisor sufficiently significantly that it impacted or affected the market integrity objective. And they commented that the FCA's case would have benefited from a more independent analytical justification of the link between the offence and the public confidence in the regulatory system. And essentially they said there that had they been asked to decide the case on the basis of the conviction alone, the tribunal would have asked the FCA to reconsider its decision to prohibit. And that wasn't, though, was it, the, the end of the matter, Nick? That's right. It wasn't. Uh, the sting in the tail for Mr. Frensham was that the tribunal found that the FCA was entitled to rely on several other matters, including the fact that the offence was committed in breach of his bail conditions following an earlier arrest for a separate incident. And perhaps most importantly, that he had not been open and cooperative with the FCA in relation to reporting to the regulator his original arrest, the breach of the bail conditions, the second arrest, and the fact that he had been remanded in custody. And he'd also not reported the fact that a professional body, the Chartered Insurance Institute, had not renewed his statement of professional standing and ultimately had expelled him from membership of that body. And because of those matters and the fact that he didn't appear to have expressed remorse or indeed acknowledge that he had failed to be open and cooperative, the seriousness of that lack of candour and the absence of that genuine remorse meant that the tribunal considered that there were sufficient grounds on which the FCA could have prohibited him and they therefore dismissed the reference saying that those matters were sufficiently serious to justify and therefore there was no point in them remitting the matter back to the FCA for redecision. Thanks Nick. So this decision effectively confirms that the approach taken by the High Court in the two solicitors cases we mentioned, Beckwith and Wingate, applies equally in financial services cases. Non-financial misconduct involving dishonesty or fraud will readily impact and clearly impact on the FCA's consumer and integrity and objectives and assessments of individuals' fitness and propriety and are likely to lead to prohibition. But other types of non-financial misconduct in and of themselves may not. Simply because something impacts on an individual's personal reputation, that does not necessarily mean that it will be relevant to a regulator's standards and to a regulator's statutory objectives. It will depend on the facts of the particular case. Even if an individual's misconduct does not engage those standards, the way the individual engages with the regulator after the misconduct may well do so, as we saw here. Thanks, Claire.
The tribunal made a number of criticisms um, about the SCA and its approach to the case and the evidence in this case. It held the evidence of non-financial misconduct itself. In other words, as Nick mentioned earlier, the conviction alone may not necessarily be enough. Uh, what the tribunal wanted to see was better evidence linking the alleged non-financial misconduct to the particular uh, statutory objectives that were applicable. So in this case, uh, as you heard earlier, uh, those relating to consumer protection and market integrity. And the tribunal wanted to see that clear linkage between those objectives and the allegations of non-financial misconduct. There needs to be, in these sort of cases, evidence to demonstrate what the impact might be, for instance, on consumers or market integrity, and that the impact in question is sufficiently serious. The tribunal also noted that the FCA didn't take urgent supervisory action at the point in time that it first learned of the relevant conduct by Mr Frensham. Uh, from this, the tribunal inferred that the FCA might not have regarded Mr Frensham, in this case, as presenting a sufficiently significant risk to its overall objectives, given what the tribunal found to be the delay in the progress of the case. So in future, it might be possible that in this sort of case, we see the FCA taking at the outset more urgent supervisory action in these non-financial misconduct cases uh, in order to preserve its prospects and make clear that its position in relation to possible future disciplinary or enforcement action. Another criticism that the tribunal made was also that it found that the FCA's witnesses didn't reveal until the point in time when they were cross-examined and re-examined that one of the main reasons for the delay in the FCA bringing this case against Mr Frensham was that there were policy discussions ongoing within the FCA at the time about the approach it wanted to take in this sort of non-financial misconduct case. And the tribunal essentially found that the witnesses hadn't been sufficiently candid about the reasons for the delay and the consideration that was going on at a senior level within the SCA about the case. That's right. I think the decision raises um, a, a number of questions about the FCA's approach to bringing such cases and, and the case that was presented to the tribunal. You've mentioned delay there, Gavin. Nick, I think there are a few other areas that the tribunal was critical of the FCA's approach. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. The FCA, at the warning notice and decision notice stage, didn't actually rely on the breach of the bail conditions and the lack of transparency as the reasons justifying the prohibition. Um, those were effectively became part of the case when it got to the tribunal. And the, the FCA was criticised for that uh, a little by the, by the tribunal. The tribunal said that it wasn't entirely satisfactory that those matters hadn't formed part of the earlier regulatory proceedings, given that the FCA knew all of the relevant facts at the time that the warning notice and decision notice stages were proceeding and, and they said that it was desirable where possible that the FCA pleads the same case in the tribunal that it does at the RDC stage. So um, certainly suggesting that the tribunal case should really be the same unless there are specific circumstances where new facts or evidence have emerged that really justify the, uh, the departure from that earlier evidence. 
they were also pretty critical of the evidence put forward by the FCA at the tribunal. Uh, they relied on two members of FCA staff, one a manager in the threshold conditions team and one a more senior individual on the policy side. But they said that neither of them were really able to deal with pretty basic questions in cross-examination about the FCA's approach. And they said it was not helpful that they hadn't heard from the people who made the relevant supervisory decisions and who were responsible for the development of the FCA's policy on non-financial misconduct. They also criticised the witnesses for not revealing until cross-examination as Gavin was alluding to earlier, that the reason or one of the reasons for the long delay in the FCA taking action was that there was quite a lot of senior debate going on within the FCA about what approach should be taken and was somewhat critical of the fact that that issue only emerged in cross-examination. And those criticisms from the tribunal uh, follow on from a number of previous decisions um, where the tribunals criticised the FCA's approach in both disciplinary and non-disciplinary cases heard before it. Is that right? That's right. There's been a number of fairly forthright criticisms in uh, some recent decisions from the, from the tribunal. So the Forsyth case, the Hussein case and the Burns case where criticisms have been made of the approach to witness evidence who the FCA puts forward as witnesses for its cases, and it, also its approach to disclosure, particularly uh, in some of those cases where the disclosure was directly relevant to questions of limitation. So in the context of some of Mark Stewart's comments around the FCA needing to take cases and be ready to take cases and be litigation ready, there's certainly some criticism in uh, from the tribunal that perhaps they need to rethink their approach to witness evidence and indeed disclosure to really fulfil their obligations to the court. Thanks Nick. That's all we have time for today. I hope you found this discussion useful. If you'd like to read more then on linklaters.com you can find our full publication on the approach to non-financial misconduct and whistleblowing in 12 key financial centres that I mentioned at the outset. And remember to share and subscribe to this podcast feed for more insights from us. You can find a link to the page in the show notes for this podcast. Thank you for listening and goodbye.